just during the worship, I just wanted to, I had this picture of a picture, of, I believe, of God, and he had this massive uh, bow and arrow, and he was pulling it right back with as like as hard as he could, ready to shoot it. And I just felt like it was a, a picture of just us together as a church and, and also individually, where there's been like last year and even longer maybe, there's just been this stretching back of us and we've been pulled back and there's this tension and it can feel uncomfortable, right? Pulling and pulling and stretching back, but he's just ready to let go and it's just going to go boom and shoot off. And so I believe that even this year, the start of this year, we're going to start to see such an increase, such a, a, uh, a rapid kind of acceleration into some of the things. And as, as Dad said, like that there's going to be fruitfulness and we're going to see some real awesome blessings, but it's going to require faith, obviously, to believe God, what he's doing and what he's saying. So I think it's pretty exciting. I'm so glad that God is a happy God. I'm so glad that he's always in a good mood and that he's like so excited about us and what he's going to do. His desire is to bless us. That's, and 2020 is going to be an awesome year, right? I believe it's going to be a year of fruitfulness, a year of such focus. But also I just felt like as I was preparing that it's going to be a year of miracles, that we're going to see, we've seen miracles in, that in the past, but I believe that we're going to see even more this year. And, it's, and it starts with this idea of just God is a good God and he wants to bless us. So Matthew 16, we're going to continue on with this series called This Is Us. And uh, I'm going to read out of the Passion Translation. This time I've read this verse probably about four or five times now. But I'm going to do it in the Passion. We're looking at Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question. What are the people saying about me, the Son of Man? Who do they believe I am? And they answered, some are convinced you are John the Baptizer. Others say you are Elijah reincarnated or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up and he said, you are the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are favored and privileged, Simon, son of Jonah. For you didn't discover this on your own, but my father in heaven has supernaturally revealed it to you. And I give you the name Peter, a stone. And this truth of who I am will be the bedrock foundation on which I will build my church, my legislative assembly. And the power of death will not be able to overcome it. In the NIV and the other translations, it says that the gates of Hades or the gates of hell won't overcome it. And I'll give you the keys of heaven, uh, the heaven's realm, heaven's kingdom to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven and to release on earth that which is released in heaven. So three things are, are really happening in this verse. There's three key identities that has been spoken of. And so the first one is obviously we see Jesus, the identity of Jesus, who he really is. And it's not a worldly kind of perspective of who he is, but a heavenly perspective, that he is Jesus the Messiah, the God, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is going to save the whole world. And he says that this revelation, you can't see in a natural way. It has to be spiritual. 
And in, and in the same way today, I believe that people have, a, have somewhat accepted who Jesus is, that he was a real person, that he lived and that he was here. Many religions accept that Jesus was real and that he was here, that he was some sort of prophet, some sort of healer, some sort of good teacher, some sort of guy who's ascended to some level of consciousness, awareness, and spirituality. And they have this understanding of who Jesus is, but it's still a worldly perspective of who he is. Even when he walked around, it's interesting that Judas had to kiss Jesus to sign to to the guards of who he was. Because when you looked at him, he had no appearance that looked like, oh, this is the ascended one, this is the Messiah. Right? You had to have a revelation from heaven to know who he was. And same today, we need to have a revelation of who Jesus really is. Um, it, it's funny, I mean, me and Lucy have talked a couple of times about you know, Kanye West. Some of you may know, it doesn't matter what you think of him, but he's just, he's just released an album last year called Jesus is King. And the point is that I really believe that God is wanting to reveal who Jesus really is to us. He'll use anyone. He wants that spiritual understanding of who Jesus really, truly is, not a perverted kind of just a good man. He is the King of Kings. He's the Lord and Savior. He is the Messiah. Amen? So that's the first identity. The second identity is, is Peter, right? Jesus, Jesus' disciple. He says, you were Simon, but now you are Peter, right? Simon meaning like a reed that sways in the wind, whereas Peter meaning a stone, a rock, something that is solid. And so he gives him a new identity that also is from heaven. It's not a worldly, uh, natural identity, but this identity comes straight from Jesus that is spiritual. And the same thing for us. It's interesting that Peter, um, from that time on, he doesn't refer to himself as as Simon anymore. He totally embraces this new identity from Jesus, from heaven. And it's true for us. God wants us to totally embrace the identity that he has given to us from heaven. That we are no longer sinners saved by grace. We are now sons of the living God. We are righteous We are holy. The old is gone. We don't have a sin nature anymore. We've become a new creation, and our past will not determine our future anymore. We are completely brand new saints. We're ambassadors of God. We are holy. We are clean. We are agents of heaven. It's who we are. United with God. United with Christ. Christ is put in us, and you can't rip him out. That is who you are. We need to fully embrace that new identity that is spiritual, that is from heaven. Amen? Third identity is identity of the church. Sorry, I just wanted to share something as I was preparing this as well. In Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul writes, he says, I am convinced of this, right? He is so, like, this is sure. He says that he who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on into completion. So what God has done in you, what he's invested into you, he is so faithful and so committed to it that he wants to see it come to fruition. The thought that I had when I was preparing uh, just went into my mind that 
some of the experiences and some of the things that I've walked in in the past that I felt at that time I've lost. And I felt God so strongly say to me, you've lost nothing. How dare you think that you've lost something? I am the one who put it in you. How could anyone else take it out? And so I just felt to encourage us, if there's certain anointings, purpose, certain destiny, certain ideas and dreams that we've got, it's God has, is the one who put it there, and you do not have the power to take it out. Because it's intrinsically linked into the life of Christ. So for you to rip it out is for you to rip out Jesus. And you can't do that. Nothing in all creation has the power to be able to separate you from Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. So you've lost nothing. It can't be stolen. The devil cannot steal away your dreams, your destiny, your passion, your, your uh, purpose, your anointing. Right? Because it's linked with him. So I just felt to encourage you with that. Third one is the identity of the church. And Jesus says that uh, the truth of who I am is the foundation of the church. The church being his people, a collective community of believers, a corporate body of Christians. It is the strongest organism on the earth. It is the most powerful weapon on the earth. So, and then he goes on to say that this assembly will never be overcome by hell, but rather it will possess the keys of the realm of God and it will uh, forbid that which is forbidden in heaven. And what's forbidden in heaven? Stacks of stuff, right? Sin, evil, corruption, disease, depression, sickness. All, all that is forbidden in heaven. It's not allowed to go through the gate. And so the job of the church is to do the same thing on the earth to forbid the things that are not allowed in heaven, to forbid it here. And then it also goes on to say, and we are to uh, release that which is released in heaven. Righteousness, peace, joy, love, uh, all the fruits of the Spirit, all the goodness and glory and the nature of God is to be released through the church on the earth. That is the church. So we have these three identities that are interconnected, that are fused together, and actually one. And um, so we've been talking about this, and we've got this global church, which which I've just been referring to, which is like the church, all the believers across the world, all of us collectively, you could say, like capital C, the church. But then we've also got local churches, which are communities of believers who meet specifically in a specific location, right? So Freedom Life, we're a local church, local community, Red Door, local church, the Gate Ministries, right? That's a local community. Got uh, Great Life, guys visiting from here, local community. And so what we've been looking at is our identity as a local church, because each local church has a different flavor, has a different culture, has a different kind of DNA, and we've all got different personalities, and we express the nature of God in different ways. It looks different. And so we've been looking at these nine... Oh, I have to do it that way, don't I? So these nine pillars who, which make up who we are as the local church, as us as Freedom Life. And we've looked at Church of Grace, Church of Glory, and we've looked at a Church of Guts. All right, remember that? I'm not going to go over it. I'm so tempted to, but I'm not going to. Um, 
but we've been up to the fourth, hopefully it's the right order, yeah, a church who gather. So that's what we're going to look at today, right? Church who gather. We believe in the coming together of the body of Christ, the corporate gathering of believers in a specific location. And so Psalm 133, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Right? Live together in unity. It's like precious anointing oil that was poured over the head and running down the whole body. For in that place of anointed unity, the Lord commands his blessing. When, when we come together, God loves it. It's his design. He's so excited when we come together. So the corporate gathering of believers to worship, to pray, to fellowship, to build relationships, to preach the gospel, to teach, study the scriptures, to heal the sick, help those in need, to be a place where God dwells and expresses his love, his divine attributes amongst his people. It's his idea, it's his design. He loves it and he blesses it. It's awesome. So today I just want to look at four points with the time we've got left of... uh, why we believe in a church that gathers. There's obviously stacks of them, um, but I've just chosen four that are kind of overarching points, which is based on some scriptures in, in Ephesians. So number one, I haven't got the slides up there, sorry. I'm just going to, so you'll just have to listen and take note. Number one, we gather to be the dwelling place of God on the earth. We gather to be the dwelling place of God on the earth. And this is in Ephesians 2, verse 19. You can turn there if you want to make note. Verse 19, it says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone, The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when we gather together, we actually become his temple. Not just on an individual level, but there's something extra. When we gather together, we become the very dwelling place where God can come and manifest. See, in, in, uh, we just read just before, he's he talking about how the church has been given the keys of the kingdom to forbid and to release. It's interesting, in Isaiah, there's, this, uh, there's a guy that they talk about, he's a servant of the Lord, and he is given the key to David's house. Right? He's a key bearer. And his job is to allow access or deny access into the king. Interestingly, the way where he would hold the key is on his shoulder, or it would hang on his shoulder. Also in Isaiah, it talks about how the government of God, the eternal government of peace that will never end, rests on his shoulders. And we know throughout the New Testament, it talks about how Jesus is the head of the church, but we are his body. 
meaning the government, the keys also, it's linked. There's a parallel understanding here that we, as the church, are the ones who hold the responsibility to open up the way to the king. Amen? It's, it's very important. So, so that uh, there's also in Psalms, it talks about, I can't remember where it is, sorry, but I believe it's in Psalms, it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, you ancient doors, so that the king may come in, the king of glory may come in. It's a reference to the church. As we worship, as we hold him up, as we gather together and put Jesus up and just say he is king, as we do that, we're opening up gates, we're opening up ancient doors so that the king of glory may enter in, that his realm would invade this realm. It is the responsibility of the church to release heaven, to become the dwelling place of God. Ephesians 3, verse 10, it says, His intent was that now through the church, right, not through individuals, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ. So God's design, his eternal purpose, is to display his many-faceted uh, brilliance, his persona, his extremely good nature through us as the church. I think it's good practice to imagine, I think Dad was talking about this last year, to imagine what that looks like, to practice putting into your thoughts and into your mind's eye what it looks like to be the dwelling place of God. And forget about trying to think and answers to all the problems of the world. Just put into your mind, if God was here, what would it look like? And people come into an atmosphere of heaven. I mean, what, what does that do to their soul? What does that do to their body? when they walk into a place that is exactly like heaven. You know, the church is actually the New Testament Garden of Eden. It's designed to be the place where heaven remains on earth. It's supposed to be a place where people can come into and access the tree of life. Whereas many churches today, they're not offering that. They're actually... Bang, plank in the middle. Here is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here is the moral code that you need to live up to. Here is the do's and the don'ts of Christianity, what you're supposed to look like. You're supposed to look like God. And people eat it up going, that's right. That's good and pleasing. That looks like the right thing to do, whereas it leads to spiritual death. Jesus is the only way to be righteous. He's the only way to be clean. He's the only way to be like God. And so we, as the church, become the Garden of Eden, where we plant trees of life, where people can come in and eat of Jesus, to drink his eternal life. That is who we are. So number one, the church is a dwelling place for God. Number two, and this is one I want to spend a little bit of time on, we gather to discover who we are and to fulfill our purpose. 
Only in the context of the body of Christ are we able to find our calling and our destiny. The church provides us with the correct foundation for ministry to others, to live in our anointing and to release the Spirit of God through our unique personality. So you can grow outside of community on your own, but the local church is like a greenhouse. It's in that environment, it promotes growth, right? It, it's, uh, it's concentrated atmosphere to produce the maximum fruitfulness in your life. I want to look at just one thing, a story. Here we go. Let's see how good my storytelling skills are. We're going to talk about Paul, Paul the Apostle. Before he was known as Paul the Apostle, he had a bit of a different identity. His name was Saul, as many of you probably know. And Saul hated Christians. He absolutely detests them. And he didn't just talk about it. He actively went out of his life, not out of his way, his purpose in life was to eradicate the disciples. He just went intensely uh, passionate and committed to destroying these Christians. And so the disciples during this time are rapidly amassing. Right? They are growing into the tens of thousands. And um, it was scary because they'd just seen Jesus die on the cross. Right? He was brutally disfigured and tortured on the cross. Yet now we've got this group, this community of believers that are amassing into the thousands who are doing similar things to what Jesus did and are not scared to be crucified like Jesus. They would arrest them, they would threaten them, they would give them all these sorts of things to try and stop them from preaching Jesus, but nothing would stop it. So we have the, we have the religious people and we have even the Romans are a little bit scared right, of the church. And so in this time, uh, we're gonna re- we won't read it. In Acts 7, we, there's this guy who, who we read about called Stephen. And Stephen was a man who was highly esteemed member of the Christian church. He was one of seven who was chosen amongst the thousands to be a leader in the community. He was a deacon, right? He was full of the spirit and he preached the gospel fearlessly. And he was walking in miracle signs and wonders. He spoke with wisdom of, of heaven and there was so much glory and just the, the goodness of, of God on him that when people saw him, they thought his face was like an angel, that it would shine. Remember, like Moses, the glory would just shine from him, reflected. And so Stephen was also like this. He was a highly esteemed member of the church. But some of the religious people, they hated Stephen. Right? They absolutely disliked who he was and what he was doing. And so they got a hold of him and brought him before the high council to accuse him of blasphemy. And Stephen, being the man that he was, takes that opportunity to start preaching to this new audience that he's got. And his message is not that great for them. So these are Pharisees that are there. And he starts accusing them, saying, 
you think you know Abraham, you think you know Moses, you think you know the law, but I tell you, you are wrong, you've missed it, and you've actually killed the Messiah that the law is talking about. So they don't like him much. It says, after he, they heard his preach, right, they were overtaken with a violent rage that filled their souls. That's what the, that's what the Bible says. A violent rage that filled their souls. They gnashed their teeth at him. Imagine you preach a message, and that's the response. You preach, and then all these people just are so violent, they just want to bash you, right? And what would you do? Run, right? What does he do? Keeps preaching. It says, he goes on, and he starts describing to them an open vision that he starts having. And the Pharisees hate it so much, they start screaming at the top of their lungs to drown out what he's saying. And then after that, they jump on him, grab him, drag him out of the city right, to kill him. Before they do that, they take off their cloaks or their, their, whatever they're wearing, their cloaks one by one, and they place them at the feet of a young man from Tarsus whose name was Saul. Why would they do that? It's an interesting introduction to who Saul was. So I imagine, and I'd suggest to you, that Saul was actually one of the strongest voices, the most outraged, violent, aggressive person in the room. Remember, he's a devout Pharisee. right? He's a Hebrew of Hebrews in the in Philippians 3, it talks about how Paul says that by legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. Meaning, if you were to look at his life, according to the law, he was living it perfectly. He was completely committed to his God. He was a passionate man. And this, he'd had enough. He'd had enough of these disciples, these people who were rebelling against the culture that has gone on for hundreds of years. And so in his mind, he's doing the right thing. He's like, we need to get rid of these people. We need to stamp these people out. And he was, I believe, the loudest voice in the room, or the most influential voice, at least, in that place to get rid of Stephen. So they drag him out. They put their cloaks at his feet. They execute Stephen. And then uh, in Acts, let me just find where I'm at. Something I was going to say. Now remember this. They were scared of the Christians. They were a little bit afraid of who they were as a community. Two chapters, I think it's before this, there's people called Ananias and Sapphira, right? Who lied to the apostles about some money and stuff. And they were zapped by God. They were, they were struck down right there where they, where they stood. And now Saul stands up, starts uh, wanting to kill a man who was highly esteemed among that community. The others were probably a little bit tentative to kill this guy once they've just heard of, a, of Ananias and Sapphira who was zapped down for doing something against this community. Would God zap down Saul for killing this man who'd done nothing except for preach? It's an interesting thought, I think. 
to, to, it gives a good description of what Paul was like, or what Saul was like, how passionately committed he was. And I believe that this act wasn't, Saul wasn't just thinking about uh, this one event, this one response to Stephen and to one man. He was actually thinking of a strategic attack against the whole community. Right? Because right after this, in Acts 8, it says, from that day on, right? From that day, it says a great persecution rose against the Christians in Jerusalem. And, they, and the whole church was scattered across Jerusalem, or across, sorry, across everywhere in Israel. And I believe it was because Saul stood up and with a passion and with a commitment and with a, a sense of having no fear of these people, and we got to stamp them out. So it shows you what he's like. In Acts 8, it says how Saul was merciless against the believers. He went from door to door, arresting men and women and dragging them into prison. Imagine that kind of Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Knock on your door. Are you a Christian? Yes. You're arrested. I'm going to drag you into, Christian, into prison where you probably get beaten and whipped. Right? This is who Saul was. In, in Acts 9, it starts the description of Saul again. It says, while breathing out murderous threats against the disciples, murderous threats, he wants to kill them, he requested the high priest to give him the letters of permission to go to Damascus and arrest the Christians there so he could take them back to the prisons in Jerusalem. So this is the introduction to Paul the Apostle. Right? So the high priest says to him, yep, go. Do what you want in Damascus. And so Saul goes along, and along the way, we know Jesus slaps him down. He meets Jesus face to face, and it totally uh, turns uh, Saul's world upside down. And now Saul, a man who just days ago was threatening to kill all the Christians, arrives in Damascus, and he stands up in the synagogue in front of the religious leaders who knew why he was there, right? And they're expecting the man to stand up with the same passion and commitment, the stories we've heard of what he's like in Jerusalem, of killing Stephen, of just scattering the church. And now this man stands up, and we're going to hear instruction from him of what's going to happen in Damascus of how to eradicate these headache Christians. And what does he do? He stands up and preaches for Jesus. And it says that they were astonished by what he said. They were absolutely like bamboozled in confusion that this man that they knew wreaked havoc in Jerusalem, is supposed to be on their side, is now preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they didn't like it either. And remember, this is his community that he's come from. This is his friends. These are people of his group. And now they're going, we reject you. We hate you. Even to the point where now they, they want to kill him and they plot and they plan to kill him. And they were serious about it because they stationed people at the gates of the city to try and watch to see if he left because they didn't want him to leave before they killed him. And so some of uh, Saul's disciples they find out about this, they know it, and they sneak him out. They put him in a basket, they lower him through a, the hole in the city wall so that he can escape. And so Saul runs back to Jerusalem. And he goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes to the Christians, the disciples 
in Jerusalem and they reject him. Wouldn't you? Think about it. Saul executed Stephen, one of their highly esteemed people. He scattered the church. He dragged their friends and their family into prison. Why, even if he was converted, why would you let him back in? You are a horrible man. You're a terrorist amongst us. So they reject him. But there was a man there named Barnabas, a great man named Barnabas. And Barnabas had been in Damascus and saw Saul preach. And so he vouches for Saul, saying it is a genuine conversion. And so because Barnabas is is highly esteemed in the community, based on his integrity, they allow Saul to come and meet with them in the church. And so Saul's there. He's accepted at least by the Christians now. And now he starts walking around in Jerusalem and he starts meeting with some of his old friends some of the Pharisees, some of the religious people, and starts having conversations with them, except for the conversations now are saturated with Jesus. They're saturated with this story of how he saved them and that he preaches the gospel to them. And again, his own community, his friends, people that he'd committed his life to, reject him. They hate him for it. To the point now where people that he's grown up with also want to kill him. What does it take, right, for you to say stuff to your friends to the point where they want to kill you. And not just, oh yeah, I, I want to kill you. Like, plan to murder you. I want to know what he was saying to make them just change and be so violent towards him. But anyway, so they want to, they want to kill him. And so the, the disciples, the apostles find out about this. And they think it's not a good idea for Saul to stay here anymore. We need to get him out. So they... Get him, pretty much force him to go out and go back to his hometown in Tarsus. So he goes there, and now here's the thing. Saul stays in Tarsus for 10 years. He's in Tarsus for 10 years before you ever hear of him again. And by our knowledge, he's not a part of any community. He's not a part of any church. He's not preaching. He's not doing miracles. He's not, uh, like a part of any sort of church corporate gathering that we know of. And he's there for 10 years. So during this time, though, some Christians, and I like this idea, just some Christians, go to a place called Antioch. And Antioch is, I believe, the third biggest city in the world at the time. It was a Roman city, and it's like, I think around about, some people say, up to like half a million people live there. And so these Christians go there thinking there's a huge amount of people there, unchurched people, Greeks, people who haven't really heard much about Jesus. So we're going to go there and we're going to preach the gospel to, these, to the people there. And this church explodes. The grace of God is there so strongly and, and stacks of people gather. Remember, we're talking about gathering. I've got a point. All, right? all these people gather. Stacks of them are gathering in this place, in this church in Antioch. And word of this reaches Jerusalem and the apostles. And so they say, Barnabas, go down to Antioch, check out this church. Apparently it's gone nuts over there. 
I want you to go have a look. So Barnabas goes, he walks for two weeks, right? It's something like 500 kilometers away. He walks all the way there to check it out, and he is amazed at the grace of God that is evident there, that the preaching of the gospel is so strong, the signs, wonders, there's miracles, and people are gathering from all over into this place. And so he is encouraged, and he encourages them. The awesome thing about this, I like this story, is that it just said that it was just some Christians, It wasn't like the super apostles or disciples or any of the deacons that went and started this church. It was just random believers that are just like, we're going to go to this place. There's a huge amount of people there that need Jesus. So they go there and the thing explodes just because they decided to gather in that place. So Barnabas is there and he encourages them to keep going. Barnabas, being full of the Spirit, gets this idea now to find that crazy man, Saul, the Pharisee, from 10 years ago. And so he goes so committed to this, right? 10 years, he walks to Tarsus, which is something like another 500, not 500, like a week or something away. So he goes there to find a man that he knew went there 10 years ago. And he finds him. He finds Saul and he brings him back to Antioch. Because in Antioch, there's no Pharisees there that are trying to kill him. So he brings him into this place, into this gathering. And it says that they preach there and they, Paul and Bar- Saul and Barnabas preach there for a year. Or I think, I think it's a year. Is it a year? For a year. And it says that the church there exploded even more. That more and more people gathered. The place was thriving because of the grace and the glory in God that was there. Let me find where I'm up to. Do you get, are you getting the picture? It's interesting it says that that place in Antioch, that church, is where believers were first called Christians. People first recognized them as being people who looked like Jesus, who spoke like Jesus. So Saul meets Jesus, he falls in love with, his message, with this message and it changes his life. He wants to, all he wants to do is preach it, right? Everywhere he goes, he, but he's chased out of Damascus, he's driven out of uh, Jerusalem, forced to go into hiding for 10 years before Barnabas brings him into a gathering church in Antioch, right? And so Saul's identity in that place, right, is that's where it was established. His new identity that was from heaven was actually, uh, it changed in Antioch. Because from there, it says that was where he was then commissioned as Paul the Apostle. I think I'm right with that. Is that right? I think. You can look it up. But anyway, from that place, I believe that's where he went out from there, and that was where he became Paul. He was no longer Saul, and he fully embraced his new identity as Paul the Apostle. And so... This is the point that I want to make. It was once Paul was placed into his proper context of that local church community, it was only once he was put in there that that's when his purpose and that's when his calling actually began to come into fruition. Can you see that? See, while he was in hiding, I'm sure he was studying the scriptures. I'm sure he was encountering God. He was experiencing the glory and grace on an individual level. 
but outside of the environment of that local church, he would never have discovered his destiny. He never would have discovered his purpose. It's probably the most influential Christian of all history. Right? Would never have had the impact that he had unless he was put into that community. I think that's a pretty important thing to keep in mind. Because you've got lots of people around there today asking, like, what is my calling? What is my destiny? What is my purpose? And we're looking for it in all sorts of other places when actually the only place you're really going to find it is within the context of the local church. What if Paul refused Barnabas? He could have. Remember, he's just been rejected by pretty much all the communities he's been a part of. Every time he tries to be a part of them, they're like, nah. <laughs> like, we hate you. We want to kill you. They want to hurt him. They want to abuse him. So why would he go like, oh, yeah, I want to go back into that? He had every reason to go, I don't want to be a part of it. I've lived here 10 years comfortably. I don't want to go in there again. The sad thing is, how many Christians that you know or I know who've left the church still believe in Christians, still believe in God, still experiencing God. They've had wild encounters. They've had awesome revelation. They know God, except that they've been disillusioned with what the church is. They've forgotten the value of the church. And sadly, they don't know what they're missing out on. They're actually walking away from their calling because they're only going to find it within the context of a local church. And when I mean the the context of a local church, I don't mean you have to minister and be the one standing at the front. I'm talking about together as the church, we go as become that dwelling place of God. And so that as we go out, we know that we've got each other's back and that we can reveal who he is, what we see and what we experience here out in the rest of the world. You don't get that without this context. I'm going to move quicker. (laughs) So we need more Barnabases, Barnabases in the world, eh? People who treat people based on their new identity, on their new nature, not on their worldly one. Encouragers who can bring people into community, right? Not just support them off as their own kind of island, shipping in supplies to them. We don't want that. We need to bring them into a corporate gathering. And secondly, we also need awesome gatherings like the church in Antioch, where the grace of God is preached, where the gospel is preached, where there's signs, wonders, and miracles, where it's not about a super apostle, right? But it's just some Christians who come together committed to the corporate gathering, to the preaching of Jesus. Number three, I'm going to move. We gather to build each other up, to encourage one another, to love one another, to grow together. None of us has got it all, t- all together. Another of us has got it all figured out. But God designed us to do relationship and to be uh, just together. We're better. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 16, it says, From him the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you know one violin can sound awesome? It can sound amazing, but a whole orchestra with whole, like hundreds of violins, right? That, will, that just moves you, 
right? The, the sound and the vibration that just comes, it just, you can feel it throughout your whole body. And uh, we're just, this, uh, I could give stacks of examples of, of those sorts of things of where just together there's just such a, a bigger kind of impact. Even think about just these fires. Imagine if the government assigned one man to put out all the fires. It would just be stupid, wouldn't it? But obviously, the more people that come together, the more people who are involved, we can make such, such a bigger impact. Um, Hebrews 10, 24, it says, Let us consider how we may spur, which means kick the horse, one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching, building each other, lifting up, fighting together, praying for one another, expressing the heart and nature of God to one another. 1 Corinthians 14, when we gather together, everyone has something to give that builds up and encourages the whole body. We're really talking about a culture of honor, a culture of no judgment and condemnation, and speaking to people's new nature, speaking and addressing people who they are now as a new creation, not as a sinner, but addressing them as righteous, as holy, as a person who is loved by God, who is accepted and as one with God. Amen? It's a thing, especially with prophecy. We don't prophesy to their old nature. Prophesy to the new nature. Number four. This is the last one, and then we're ready to land. We gather together to grow in our knowledge of Jesus, to mature and ultimately attain fullness in Christ. So everything we do as the church is the representation of the persona of Jesus. Everything we do is an expression of him, of who he is. And so Jesus, it says that he's coming back for a bride. Us as the church is his bride that is spotless, that has got no wrinkles, that is just... I love what Bill Johnson says. He says that Jesus is coming back for a bride or a body that's in proportion to its head. And that just simply means that we look like Jesus, that everything we do is a full expression of him. And so healthy maturity is only achieved in a healthy community. And so this is the greenhouse where we grow, where we mature, where we begin to look and manifest just like Jesus, look exactly like he does. I'm going to end. Cool. So we believe in a church who gathers. Amen? Gathering is important. It's beneficial for us and for the world. It's his design. And so 2020 is going to be a year of great fruitfulness. As I was just saying before, year of miracles. But I believe it's this thing of like, God, like Dad was saying, of, of faith and of focus in, in the sense that we fully embrace the body of Christ. That we embrace the local church, the importance and the value of it, because it's within that context, that is where we see blessing. That is where God pours out his blessing. It's in that context. And just one more thought, just to remember, I've said it a few times now, but the, the, this really changed my, my thought, my life. I've had heaps of encounters with God, right? Stacks of pretty wild ones that I haven't really shared with many people because I think that they'll think I'm a bit crazy. And those things have changed my life. But this one revelation came to me just as a thought. 
and it fully shifted the way I see the church. It shifted the way I pray. It shifted everything about it. And this is it. The context of the whole Bible is the corporate church, the body of Christ. So when you read the word, often we can kind of personalize it and think, what does this mean for me right now in this specific situation? And that's good. I think that we want to hear from God, but it, not, it must be filtered through the context of the local church because every book of the Bible is written in a corporate context. It's written either to a local church or to there's some that are written to individuals for the purpose of encouraging a local church or local churches. So we need to have that understanding and remember that, that God highly values his church. It's the only thing he's building on the earth. So I encourage you with that.